All right, good afternoon, guys. Thanks for coming. Yeah. Hey, um, yeah, we're looking at the decree of God this afternoon, and I think it's been a bit of a subject in the, in the conference, I think. Eh? It's been talked about a little bit. And uh, Mike Abendroth, I think, yesterday afternoon started us off, and he was looking at Titus 1. And I think he took our minds back to um, the promise, the promise that God made before the foundation of the world. And he, um, that's just my booming voice coming through. And he, um, <laughs> so he took us back before, before the world began and, and looked at Titus 1, how the, the, the three persons of the Trinity uh, made a promise and a, a pact. And there was, there's a term that's used, which is called the pactum salutis, is the Latin term. Of, of this inter-Trinitarian agreement and this decree of God. But it is, it's, such a, it's such an important doctrine. But we, uh, what, what we'll do today is uh, I'm just going to give an introduction and a definition of, of what the doctrine is. And then we're going to look at the biblical basis and the characteristics of the, the doctrine of the decree or the divine decree. Um, and then the third part of what we're going to look at is trying to just engage with a little bit, try to understand it and... Um, try to see it and, and, and sort of see some of the implications of how it all works out. So to try to, because it is such a, it's, an, it's a neat concept, but hard to get your head around. But we'll start off with the, the definition of the doctrine. So God's decree is his eternal plan, whereby according to his decretive will and for his glory, and this is, this is the main part of it, he foreordained everything that comes to pass. So that's the meat of it, that God foreordained everything that comes to pass. Yet so is thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. To put it simply, is to be understood as God's eternal plan for all that exists or all that will happen in time. So if you can imagine when you, when you build a house, we often speak of the foundations as the starting point for the house, and there's a sense in which that's true. The foundations are the first visible part of the house that's built. Everything else is based on and built upon the foundations. But if you think about it a little bit more, and perhaps even to our surprise, we realize that the, the plans are actually more foundational than the foundations. Does that make sense? There's something that even came before the foundations. They only came to be because there was plans. So the plans themselves are not part of the physical bricks and mortar of the house, um, so the plans in and of themselves don't execute or undertake the building work, but their invisible reality and influence is what ultimately caused, foreordained, guided, and directed every part of the building. Does that make sense? There's that influence of the plans in creating the building. So in a similar way, when God created the world, there was a plan. Herman Bavinck speaks of the decree in this way. He says, the, world, uh, the decree is a... Um, the world plan of a single artistic vision. The world as a whole is a masterpiece of divine art in which all the parts are organically connected. And of that world and all its dimensions, the counsel of God is the eternal design. And that term there, the counsel of God, is another, another way in which we speak of the divine decree. It's the eternal counsel of God. Or, you'll, or verses that you'll see as we get look in the Bible, it'll talk of God's plan, his purpose, his goodwill, or God's pleasure. And it speaks of God's will, like what God wants to happen and God's intent. Um, so the all-wise God didn't just make the world and then step back and see what would happen. 
from eternity past, before the foundation of the world, God had a plan. And God's plan for the created world and redemptive history is what we call the decree of God. And, and this is important as well. Everything God planned, purposed, willed, and intended will most certainly come to pass. Uh, so this is why we call it the determinative counsel, because it, he doesn't not only know what is coming to pass, but the decree establishes that he determines what comes to pass. And so we call it the determinative counsel and the eternal decree of Almighty God. <clears throat> so that's the definition. That's, that's, and simply, you can say it's God's plan. And you can, you can, so hopefully you're with me on that point. But just want to look at just one thing first as well. Why is the doctrine so important? And, and a previous pastor here once gave a memorable illustration. And he, he lived in a rural setting on a farm. And he, um, he tasted the water, tasted a bit bad. And he, there was something's wrong. And over time, the water you know, it got increasingly, it was, it was not right. There was something wrong. So he, he you know, it got to the point where it got so bad. And he's like, I need to work out what's going on with the water. And he, he looked in the tap. You know, and clean the tap, and the water was still bad. And he went out the back, and he, you know, pushed things through the pipes, tried to clean it out, and 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 the water was still bad. He couldn't work it out. And the water, the house was on tank supply, so he looked in the tank. The tank was clean, but the water in the tank is all bad, and he he can't work out what's causing the bad water. And I think he he had to walk up a hill up the back of the house. So he walked up the back of the property, and there's a pipe that ran down. So there's a spring of water and a, and some sort of pool of water and a pipe that ran down and fed the house, and, and they came in. They walked up there, and as he, as he went up the hill and he, he saw the water, he, he saw the problem, and there was an old, dead, rotting sheep or some animal was, was in the water supply. And so they're drinking this water. But, but the point I'm trying to make is there was, there was a problem that was right at the cause, right at the beginning. There was something that was making the water taste bad, um, and so the doctrine we're considering this morning, the decree of God, functions much like that illustration. It's a, it's a source, foundational, or root doctrine. Uh, it's an antecedent upstream, and it's right at the very spring of many of our theological doctrines. Um, so what I want you to understand today is if you get this doctrine wrong, everything downstream becomes polluted. Does that make sense? So in our day... There is an explosion of, of different doctrine, teaching, churches, denominations, movements, and religions, and they all profess to be presenting true Christianity. Even amongst our own churches that will be represented here today, there's many different views and doctrines that cause arguments and divisions, aren't there? And um, before we finish our time today, we're, we're going to take a sample of some of the core Christian doctrines, so a number of different things, and we're going to see how God's decree uh, shines light on those things and helps us to understand a number of different doctrines. Um, so it is, it's just a wonderful truth. And, and if, if this truth, which is, I think Matthew alluded to it, Pastor Matthew, that it's an old truth, but it's a true truth. Uh, and if, if there was more attention given to this, I think the Lord's church would be in a, a lot more uh, better place. Um, and it would be a real blessing to us all. So you could think of our situation like this. All the present doctrinal differences in our churches have grown into a great big tree where every kind of heresy has made its home and made its nest. And if you want to cut down a tree, you don't swing the axe into the leaves and branches, do you? You're just going to make a mess and scare the birds, I think. But you sink the, you sink the axe into the trunk. And in a similar way, to tackle these matters today, which I think you'll, you'll be more aware of as we get into it, 
uh, we, we want to tackle the, the problem at the root and we're going to go back to an antecedent doctrine and, and then let the consequences fall back from there. Um, so that's, that's the first part of the three that we're going to look at today. So the definif- definition of the doctrine is that it's God's plan. And you with me? God's got a plan. And secondly, and it's, it's important because there's dozens of other doctrines that hinge on our understanding of this one doctrine. Um, and so what we're going to do now is we're going to look at the second part and we're going to ask a question. I've given you a definition. I'm going to ask you, is it biblical? And that's a fair question, isn't it? I've given you just a definition that God foreordains everything that comes to pass. But we're going to look, um, and I think Mike um, took us to Titus 1, and we looked at some other passages, and we're going to look at a number of other ones that, that teach the divine decree. Um, so if you can um, open your Bibles with me to Isaiah 46, and as you do that, I'll just make a couple of comments. But Isaiah's ministry was approximately 700 years before Christ, and the spiritual condition is bleak, uh, and the prophet is condemning the rebellion and the idol worship and the empty religion of the people of Israel. And in in chapters 40 to 48, um, there's two main themes that are repeatedly running through. And one is, the first theme is a scathing attack on the stupidity of worshipping idols. And you you know those verses when they they literally take something, make it with their hands, and then they bow down and worship it. And there's this low view of God. And the second theme that's running through in these chapters here, and there's actually nine sermons that the prophet is preaching in chapters 40 to 48. And, um, and so the second theme is, in stark contrast to the low views of God and the idolatry, is a high and exalted view of the majesty of God. And so with idolatry as the backdrop, uh, the true and living God speaks in these, these verses that we're going to look at, and he tells us what he's like, what the true God is like. And we want to ground the doctrine of the decree in the person and the attributes of God and see how he is to understand how he acts. And so if you can turn with me to Isaiah uh, chapter 46, and we're going to look at verse 8 to 11. We're going to look at a number of passages after it, but I just want to, I just want to make some observations of this text. So if you read with me, Isaiah chapter 46, verse 8 to 11, and, and it says this, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors, you sinners. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel, that's a word for the decree there, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my good pleasure or all my purpose. And then in verse 11, it says, Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, says, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. <clears throat> and so just, we're just going to look at a few things, just make some observations of this text. And if you look at the first word there in verse 8, it has, has the word remember. And it's an imperative and it's a command. And God is commanding them to remember, to to think about something. And you can see it says, stand firm there. And, and the idea is that, that God is speaking, and you'll notice God is the one speaking in these words, that God is commanding his people to stand firm, to think about something, and, and to take it like a man, to be grounded in this truth. He's going to tell them something about who he is and what he's like. Uh, recall it to mind, you transgressors, and you have in the back of their mind, they're, they're worshipping idols, they've got low views of God. Remember the former things of old. 
He tells his people to, to look back and remember what God has done. How has God done things in the past? And you know, you, you see in the, in the story of Israel and the people of Israel, God said they would be taken into the land of Egypt. They're going to be there for 400 years. Then God's going to deliver them and take them out. And then what do they do? They do exactly what God said was going to happen. And so there's that times a hundred times in the Old Testament where God has acted in this way, where he's declared at the beginning what happens at the end, and everything God says comes to pass. So he's telling them to look back. This is no new thing. This is just how our God acts. And so he, he's commanding them, stop being so stupid and foolish and remember what the true God is like. And he says, for I am God, at the, in, in verse 9 there, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. And, and you see God lifting himself up, and he's about to address his people. And there's a sense in which it's, do you remember that passage at the end of the book of Job where God suddenly says, stand there like a man, and, and I will speak to you. And then he, un, you know the passage? And he just unloads on him. And there's this sense to that passage as well, where God's saying, stand there like a man. I am God, and there is no other. And there is none like me. And the God of the universe is about to speak, not in, in a way like, look at the words, it says, I am God. He's, he's just directly speaking through the prophet here. And he says, there's none like me. And he's going to say something about his character, something about his attributes, something about what he's like. And in verse 10 is the, is the central passage to draw your attention. It says, declaring the end from the beginning. And so there's a little parallel here. At the beginning... He declares what's going to happen at the end. In the next line, it says, from ancient times, like back in the past, he's going to declare things that are not yet done. And so there's, a, there's the idea is that this God says what's going to happen before it even happens. And so there's, in our mind, there's a, there's a huge question that comes up because everyone will agree with this. No one, at this point, no one's disagreeing. God knows the future. Does that make sense? He can say what the future is going to happen and, and everybody is generally on board. But the question is, our definition says that God determines the end from the beginning, which is a whole other thing, isn't it? A whole lot of different consequences. So that's what we want to know. But I want, you to look at, um, I want you to look at the next half of verse 10 there. It says, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. And again, it's a Hebrew parallelism where it says the same thing but in different verse, uh, different words. And, and whose counsel is it there that you can see? Does, does God look forward like Mike was saying yesterday afternoon? Does he say God looks forward and sees what human beings will do? And he says what they decide to do will stand and their purpose will be accomplished. Or, or does our text say, my counsel shall stand? So at the beginning, God's counsel, God's decree is there. And what he says, our text says, is... His purpose, God will accomplish all my purpose, all my pleasure. And so you have the way that God knows the future is not dependent on the person. It's dependent on his will and his purpose. And that's why this text locks in place the fact that God is not talking about a mere foreknowledge. He is, he is declaring at the beginning his plan, his purpose, and his intention and it says there, my counsel will stand. And the idea is that what he says at the beginning, it's upheld and it's standing and people can try to come against it and it stands and it stands and it stands and nothing can stop God's purpose being achieved. And so I'll just say one more thing about that is 
with the, with the being of God and the doctrine of God, we have uh, an, an attribute we talk about, which is, we can, in, in systematic theology, we'll call it independence. And mankind is not independent of God. God is independent of us. And what, another way of saying it is, is the word aseity. Has anyone heard that before? God's aseity. And it means that God is not dependent on anything to be what he is. So we depend on God for our life. We have life because it came from God, but God has life in and of himself. He's the, the, like the, the most back, if you went back and back to the cause of all things, at the end of it is God, and he exists in and of himself. Nothing caused him to be. He's an eternal being, and he has everything in and of himself. Another doctrine we believe in is simplicity. So God is not made up of parts. We speak of God's attributes as if he's love, mercy, grace, in different bits, and we slice them up like a pie. But the doctrine of simplicity says that, that God is a single divine essence, and, and he, he's not made up of parts. Because if God was made up of parts, the parts would be before him, and when they came together, it makes him. Does that make sense? But God is like the most base. He, he, there's nothing that makes him be. He's not dependent on parts to be what he is. He's not dependent on life to have life. He has everything in and of himself. And that, that idea of simplicity, of that one divine essence is important as well because what does omniscience mean? All-knowing, eh? God is all-knowing. But simplicity means that God's attributes don't, don't work in different ways. Omniscience and aseity kind of merge together. Every, all the attributes kind of mix together. And so a proper understanding is that God's knowledge, which is what we're talking about here, is knowledge of the future. If his knowledge was dependent on the creature, it's not an... It's, it's an it's a, it's, that his aseity, his character falls down. Does that make sense? And so you, you, can't, you can't make God dependent on anything. You can't make his knowledge dependent. You can't make his life dependent. God is an independent being. And so aseity and those, those incommunicable attributes of God lock in place that when you think of a, people call it a prescient foreknowledge, where God looks down the tunnel of time and, de, you know, Based on what people do, that God is dependent on them for his knowledge is just, is just faulty. So you can't maintain the attributes of God correctly if you, if you believe in that. And um, anyway, I'll move on because I'm getting carried away from my notes. But, but basically, it's, it's um, yeah, well, look at verse 11. It says, there's another thing here. It says, what happens is, so he's established this truth about him that he not only knows the future, but he determines the future and his purpose is what is the cause of all things. Verse 11, God calls a, an example into place. And he says, Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of counsel from a far country. And what he's speaking of there is, is a man by the name of Cyrus, who doesn't even exist when this is written. And there's a prophecy that there's going to be a king of Babylon. And, and in, in the two chapters before this, 44 and 45, there's all these details about a, a future king. He's going to be called Cyrus. He's going to... Um, have it send out a decree as well that the people are going to be restored, you know, the, the Babylonian captivity, that some of the Israelites are going to come back, they're going to build the foundation of the temple, they're going to be restored back to their place. And God even names the king before he even exists. And then that king does exactly what he says. And so this is what this is referring to. It's an example of God acting in this way where God... Sorry, Donald, is it a question? His plan. Oh. Yeah, sure. 
What's the basis of God's foreknowledge? Well, he, it's his will and his purpose, is it? Yeah. And so it's not, it's not the creature's will. It's not the creature's purpose. It's not the creature's decision. God himself is, is the cause of all things. Is that what you're after? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, because so yeah. many people look at foreknowledge as something God's existing outside of time mm. and, and know what's going to happen because he exists outside of time. This mm. is some category that mankind isn't Yeah, and you know, with foreknowledge, it can't be dependent on the creature because they didn't exist. It's before the world began. It's just God. Does that make sense? It can only be God. Everything comes from God. For from him, through him, and to him are all things. <coughs> anyway, no, thank you, Donald. But yeah, so it says at the end here, and it just sums it up, and it says, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. And you see the certainty, eh? It's not saying I might bring it to pass, or there's options of how it comes. I have spoken, I will bring it to pass, and it repeats it again with that parallelism. I have purposed, and I will do it. And there's just no uncertainty there, is there? Clear? So clear. And so it's just as God spoke and the world burst into existence, just as God said, let light shine out, shine out of darkness and creation, in the same way when God's decree goes forth, the history of the world is established. Everything he desires comes to pass. God's decree is said to be, and this is a key word, effectual. God's decree is effectual. He will do it. It will come to pass. So God's language is definite, fixed, and certain. And the all-wise God didn't create a world and then cross his fingers and see what mankind would do. So then that's, that's deism. We don't believe in a God that just starts the world and then steps back and says, what are these creatures going to get up to? No, that, that is not the God of the Bible. So we dare not banish God from his world or providence. Our God actively controls all things. History is under the sovereign control of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Everything moves towards his appointed plan and nothing can stop him doing all his good pleasure. So that's, that's one passage of scripture in the Bible that affirms that, that character in God. And what I'm going to do now is we're going to, we're going to skim through quickly through a number of other passages. And, and we can't cover them in detail. But I just want you to see the breadth of, of the way the word of God affirms this. This is not just one or two odd verses that I'm picking and twisting. So I want you to know that the decree is immutable, which means it cannot be changed. Psalm 33.11, and don't try to keep up with me. I think we'll, we'll skim through these quickly. Psalm 33.11 says, The counsel, and that's a trigger word, isn't it? That's God's counsel. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans, another key word, of his heart to all generations. In Job 42 verse 2, after God's famous and forceful rebuke, Job compresses, confesses, sorry, I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So clear. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You remember Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4.35, after his mind's returned to him, he says, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he, speaking of God, he does according to his will, trigger words there, in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? And and you know what a window stay is? When the window's open and there's a little stay propping it, God's hand is, when, is speaking of God acting. And when God wants to act and do something, nothing can stay his hand. He's just going to act. Nothing can stay his hand and say to him, what are you doing? Uh, if you look in Isaiah 43 verse 13, it says the same thing. This is God again. I act and who can reverse it? 
Simple, eh? This is a rhetorical question from God. It's an intentional literary device to communicate truth so obvious it doesn't even need an answer. Nobody can reverse God's actions. Nothing can stop God's plan. The decree, I want you to know that the decree is comprehensive. And and this is a really key verse. Ephesians 1.11, very important verse. It speaks of God and it says, Who works all things according to the counsel of his will. What's the counsel of his will talking about? Trigger word A, it's his decree. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. So this is the extent of God's decree. It encompasses all things. And this is important as well. The context from the previous verse, just so I'm not ripping it out, it speaks of all things in heaven and on earth. And so that's, that's the context of all things. All things in heaven, all things on earth. There's no other things except God himself. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. I want you to know that God's decree ordains the good actions of people. And you start to see people being drawn into this. And this is where Mike and the question time is. This is when you start gulping. And you're like, whoa, this, 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 the extent of God's sovereignty is just remarkable. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, as if he's made us and fashioned us into something, created in Christ Jesus for good works, and listen to this, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The good works were decreed beforehand, and then we walk in them. And so that's the order. That's the biblical order. Um, the decree even, and, and bear with me in this one, the decree even includes sinful acts, sinful actions. And I want you to note that this is, this is the word of God speaking, because this is a, a tricky thing to navigate. Proverbs 16.4 says, Boom. <laughs> Proverbs 16.4 says, The Lord has made everything for a purpose. So this is the plan. He's made everything for a purpose, even the wicked, for the day of destruction. He's made everything for a purpose, even the wicked, for the day of trouble, destruction. In Job 42.11 it says, which is the last chapter in the book of Job. And you, you remember the story of Job, right? The devil went, did all these terrible things to him. The Chaldean raiders came in and, and family's dead. All the livestock and everything's gone. And in the last chapter of the book of Job, it says, Then the Lord restored the fortunes of Job for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Who brought the evil upon Job? God even takes responsibility in an ultimate sense of all the evil that came upon Job. And you know the devil came and got permission to act in a certain way. But ultimately, God never does any evil himself, but he's still ultimately responsible for it. In Isaiah 45 verse 7, I think Mike's sermon Sunday morning this morning, he hit, what was it on, the most scary verse in the Bible? Well, I've got competition for him. <laughs> says, <laughs> now this, this is, but anyway, this is the word of God. It says, this is God speaking. I form light, Isaiah 45 verse 7. I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. And just to make it clear, he says, I am the Lord who does all these things. You know the word there for calamity? I create calamity. There's a Hebrew word for it's, it's ra, and I'm not going to try to pronounce it properly, but just think ra, ra, it means evil. You know that in the Garden of Eden, there was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yeah, God creates ra. He creates evil. I'm the Lord who does all these things. Acts 2.23, 
says this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And, and those are trigger words, aren't they? According to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge. So it's not mere foreknowledge. There's a predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And so when Christ was nailed to the cross, it was sinful, right? Could there be a greater sin? And Jesus was delivered over according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. The greatest of all sins was part of God's plan. Acts 4, 27 to 28 <clears throat> says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. Listen to all the people with wills. Listen to all the different people involved in the decision of these events. There were gathered together whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with all the Gentiles, or along with the Gentiles, and all the peoples of Israel. Do you know what they did? They were gathered there to do whatsoever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. That's what all those free will people did. They did exactly what God's plan determined to take place. And again, to stress the point, they crucified Christ, the greatest of all sins, and God is sovereignly in control of all things. <clears throat> so Proverbs 19:21 says, "Many are the plans in the mind of a mind. Oh, sorry, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but the purpose of the Lord will stand." So man plans, but God, God is, has this undergirding sovereignty even in man's plans. Proverbs 16 verse 9 says a similar thing. The mind of man plans his way. So man wills and plans and decides what he wants to do, but the Lord directs his steps. So mankind just can't shake off the sovereignty of God. No matter how hard he tries, he, he just cannot banish God from his world, cannot banish God from his providence. Proverbs 20, 24 says, and this is the Nasby, man's steps are ordained by the Lord how then can man understand his way? There's something a little more complex going on than God just standing back and letting us have free will. There's something far, far greater going on in our world. And so the decree is eternal. Second Timothy 1 verse 9 says, Who saved us, not because of our works, so not looking to the future to see what we would do again, but because of his own purpose and grace. And you see his own purpose, trigger words, Speaking of God's plan, purpose, decree, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And again, it takes you back to before time began, before, before, there was, before the foundation of the world, God had this plan. The decree originated before the foundation of the world. And you can see in this verse as well that the decree is unconditional and independent of mankind. The decree is not dependent on our works, but based on his own purpose, which we were talking about before. Last one of these verses here, Psalm 115 verse 3, um, says, Our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. And that sums up the whole thing. <coughs> so, imagine this. God never experiences frustration or defeat. Never. He's never a God that fails. He always does what he wants. He never wishes something would happen that doesn't happen. And he does all that he pleases. So sadly, and in spite of the overwhelming biblical evidence, over the centuries there have been many who have tried in John Owen's word to exempt themselves from God's jurisdiction, to free themselves from the supreme dominion of his all-ruling providence, to have an absolute and independent power and nothing but chance, contingency, and their own wills. 
And he says it's a most nefarious, and you want to look that word up and see how terrible it is. It's a, it's a most, there's like 30 adjectives that are all terrible. It's a most nefarious sacrilegious attempt to do this. They deny, this is what they deny, they deny the eternity and unchangeableness of God's decree. For these, if these were established, they fear their idle free will must be limited, their independency prejudice. Wherefore they chose rather to affirm that his decrees are temporary and changeable, yea, that he really does change them according to the several mutations, that means changes that he sees in us, which how wild a conceit it is, how contrary to the pure nature of God, and we looked at that, eh? The attributes of God fall to bits, how contrary to the pure nature of God, how destructive to his attributes, and how blind it is to the plain teaching of Scripture. And we saw that as well. He goes on to say, A desire for self-sufficiency is that bitter root from whence have sprung all those heresies, man desiring exemption from the overruling providence of Almighty God, all which wrangling disputes of carnal reason against the word of God come at last to this head. And this this is the key question. Whether the first and chiefest part in the disposing of the things of this world ought to be ascribed to God or to man? That's the key question. So this, you could say it like this. That's to say, who is the ultimate cause of what happens in this world? Who's steering the ship? Is it God or is it man? And the Bible answers that God has decreed all things whatsoever that come to pass. That's the, that's the, hopefully, you can see that's the clear teaching of Scripture. Overwhelmingly clear. Herman Bavink again says, Scripture does see even in the negative events of history, those were the tough things we looked at, Scripture does see even in the negative events of history the active sovereign will of God. And I want you to know this as well. Believers do not claim to comprehend all this. We don't claim to understand it exhaustively. But they do believe that the alternative... Pessimism is the fruit of acknowledging the blind will of a chaotic deity is impossible. Believers are willing to look at the disturbing realities of life. They do not scatter flowers over graves. Biblical Christianity has no use for such drivel. It refuses to be hoodwinked. It takes full account of the seriousness of life, champions the rights of the Lord of Lords, and humbly bows in adoration before the inexplicable sovereign will of God. This almighty God is also, we believe, our merciful Father. And so he says this, this is not a solution. We haven't, we haven't, this is a hard thing to understand. So this, he's not giving you a solution, but this is an invitation to rest in God, to rest in his sovereignty. So we ask the question, this, just to finish part two, we ask the question, is the decree of God biblical? And I believe the answer is yes, God hasn't. He hasn't even spoken in secret. He, this, this truth just thunders throughout the scriptures. It's so obvious. So that's the end of the second part there, the biblical basis. Is the, is the divine decree biblical? We, we could look at so many more passages about the minute things God's in control of, the weather that God's in control of, just everything. The Bible is just affirming it left, right, and center. So the part three, the last thing I want to I show you today, and I wanted to work up to this point. There's a bit of groundwork that we've covered, but... We want to understand and explain the doctrine and sort of see it a little bit better, understand it. It's, 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 a, it's a great mystery to us. But I'm going to run you through uh, three or four different ideas that will just build on each other, and I hope we get up to the point where I'm going to draw on the blackboard at the end, and we'll, we'll, um, hopefully we'll be able to 
understand a few things. So the first thing I want you to think of to help you get your head around it is, is understanding the foolishness of rationalism. So Francis Schaeffer has defined rationalism as the idea that man is the measure of all things. So man is the measure of all things. It's an idea that pervades our culture. Have you ever heard someone say something like this? If we can't see it ourselves, it doesn't exist. Does that mean if we can't see it, it doesn't exist? It's a foolish idea because it wrongly assumes that mankind is the ultimate being and measure of reality, that there's nothing above or beyond what we can understand. You know, Lewis Burkhoff, and um, I didn't read him for years, he sat on my shelf because Donald Stevenson came past our house, I think it was a pastoral visit years ago, and he said, oh, if you want to fall asleep, read Lewis Burkhoff. And I just, I just brought this book. And so it sat there dusty for a few years, but then one day I pulled it off and it was useful, you know. So anyway, so, yeah. <laughs> Anyway, I started reading it, and it had this neat thing right at the beginning. And he, and he says of this, he's talking about theology, which is the knowledge of God. He, said, he says, The knowledge of God differs in an important point from all other knowledge. In the study of all other sciences, man places himself above the object of his investigation, and he, and, and he actively elicits from it his knowledge by whatever method he may seem appropriate. So... I'm above the pen, and I look down on it, and I can measure it, and I, I look down. But in theology, he does not stand above, but rather under the object of his knowledge. And God is a transcendent being. I can't measure him. I can't even see him. So it's, it's not a good way to understand knowledge. So for man to conclude that there is no God is what the Bible calls foolishness. There are divine realities that exist and are real, and man simply cannot comprehend them. Rationalism is small-minded, it's reductionistic, it reduces everything down to our human level and doesn't allow for anything greater than ourselves. You're never going to come to a knowledge of God if you have to be able to see it. And so, that, anyway, yet surprisingly, a similar type of reductionistic thinking often pervades Christianity. There is a kind of Christian rationalism where we only accept as true the doctrines that are obvious and apparent to us. When any theological idea starts to rise above our perception of the world and how we think it works, we're prone to deny that it could be true. We pull everything back down to a level of understanding that we are comfortable with. And so we're just, if we don't know it, it must be wrong. Somebody comes to us with something and we're like, it must be wrong. Can't be above my way of thinking. And so I want to give you an analogy of this. And the ancient Greek philosopher... Uh, Plato uh, had a vivid illustration of a cave, and I need you to use your imagination because it's a tricky thing, so follow what I say here. Plato had this illustration of a cave, so an underground cave. Imagine a dark cave underground where a series of prisoners are chained with their heads forced to look at the cave wall. Behind them, like at their backs, there's a pathway, uh, and people from the world above, so you know they're not in the cave, people from the world above can come and walk past Behind the pathway, so the people are walking past behind them, and behind them there's a, there's a torch, and it provides light. So there's a, like a burning torch that provides light. And as people move through the pathway, the light from the fire casts their shadow onto the cave wall that the prisoners can see. So if I was one of the prisoners, people walk past behind me and project it onto the wall as, as shadows, and my face is fixed. I can't move it anywhere. Does that make sense? So imagine as well that these prisoners have been there in this position for their entire life. 
They, they know nothing of the world above. They've only ever been able to see the shadows that are cast onto the back wall of the cave. They can't even turn their heads around to see each other. And they've, they've never even seen their own body. They've just seen shadows. That's, that's their existence. Now imagine what would happen if one of these men was set free, taken up to the world above. After taking a week or so to adjust their eyes to the brightness of the light, they would see the sky, the sun, the stars, trees, just things they'd never seen before. They didn't even know they existed. They would, they would see other people and all sorts of things they'd never experienced. They would also see that when the sun shone on an object that it cast a shadow. And imagine what they'd be thinking. Their mind would be exploding. For their entire lives, they'd believe the shadows were the full extent of reality. They only knew shadows. But now they could see the actual objects that caused the shadows to be. The shadows were only like a secondary knowledge. And there was a whole world of objects and people that ultimately caused the shadows to exist. And so lastly, what do you think would happen if the person that was taken up to the world above saw all these other things, was taken back down into the cave and chained up next to the prisoners again. And no doubt he would be trying to tell, he'd be, he's able to talk, he's talking to the other things, trying to tell them what he's seen. But what do, you, what do you think these other prisoners would say to him? They'd be like, you're mad. There's no such thing. Like, you, you've just gone cuckoo. Like, we, we've never seen that. We don't know that. Like, you, the sun and the sky and blue and... They would think he'd gone absolutely mad. They, just, they, they wouldn't be able to comprehend what he was talking about. They wouldn't have the mental capacity to believe in the things that they had never experienced themselves. It would just exceed their limited understanding of reality. So this, this picture illustrates a, a, a biblical concept that there are, as it were, two worlds. There's a visible world in which we live and move and walk around, and there's an invisible world. One in which we, we know and understand and one in which we don't. Ecclesiastes 5 verse 2 says, For God is in the heaven, that's one world, and we're on the earth. And, we, and this is the thing. We always are pride. You know, we, 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 we lift ourselves up to think we know things. But we need to understand ourselves to be the prisoners in the cave that we don't have a full understanding of the things of God. Does that make sense? We need to see ourselves as the one with a limited understanding and remember that there are things about God that are true, but just exceed our creaturely capacities to comprehend. In Isaiah 55 verse 9, it says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my, my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And so the divine decree concerns an aspect of God's will. So what God wants or intends or plans or purposes to happen it concerns an area of God's will that is simply higher than we are. To understand the doctrine, this is the first thing you need to accept. That is a way in which God works that is beyond us. And with that in mind, we can, we can now look at, at the doctrine a little bit more clearly. And, and so, so what we need to do is the, the decree is God's will. Um, understanding the will of God is critical to understanding the doctrine. So our definition of the decree, if you remember, I'm sure you all remember it, don't you? <laughs> the decree is, is God's eternal plan, and it said, whereby according to his decretive will, he foreordained all things that comes to pass. And so the decree of God is related to what we call his decretive will, and that's where you get that word decree coming from. So there's a critical distinction in theology made between two types of God's will, and one is his decretive will, and one we'll call his preceptive will. And in the word preceptive, you can hear the word precepts, 
And so you can think God's laws, God's commands, His, his precepts. Um, and so, and so what, and, um, what most Christians do is they believe in one of God's will and they are ignorant of the other. It's like they live in the shadow world. They believe that God's will is just like ours. And so when we will something to happen, it may or may not happen. Does that make sense? I want to do something. I don't have enough money. I can't do it. But that's not, that, that's not the God of the Bible that we, we looked at. So they imagine God to have a will just like ours. But there's a way in which there's a higher reality where God operates differently than us. And so we make this distinction. And so, um, so yeah, so God's preceptive will in 1 Timothy 2 verse 4. So this is the precepts. This is the one like us, the type of God's will, which is kind of like ours. Uh, God's preceptive will. In 1 Timothy 2 4, it speaks of a God who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, imagine what we've just looked at in the Bible. God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Does everybody, is everybody saved and come to the knowledge of the truth? No. I've just told you that God's decree, he always does his good pleasure. Can you see the tension? So what, what, what's going on? So that's why we have to make this distinction because the Bible speaks of God's will in two ways. All those verses we looked at at the beginning, they emphasize God's decretive will where he does everything he wants. No one can thwart his purposes. No one can stay his hand. And then we read things that God desires, things that don't happen. And so the perceptive will of God are God's... The best way to understand it is they are God's commands... So, sorry, another verse is that God commands all men everywhere to repent. And do all men everywhere repent? No. So God's will is not done. He doesn't do all his good pleasure, it seems. Does that make sense? So the distinction comes in is very critical because what people do is they conflate it all and they think God's will is just like ours and they deny what we looked at, that decretive, firm will of God. And um, so anyway, so you can see the tension there. But God's... Um, yeah, so, and so the best way to understand the precept of will of God, which is the will like ours, is to understand them as his laws, as his commands. They contain our duty, what we should do if we would please him. God's precept of will is easy to understand because it's like our own. When we will or desire something to happen, it may or may not happen, and there's no certainty, and it's not effectual. And so we have to acknowledge the Bible does speak in both ways. Does that make sense? And so that's where a lot of the confusion comes from. But a grand mistake many Christians make is that they stop there like prisoners in Plato's cave. They think the shadow world is the full extent of reality. They think that God's will is just like ours and there's nothing more to know. They unwittingly content themselves and they don't lift their minds to think any further. And from this limited basis, they proceed to construct their theology, believing that God is just like us. When he wills something to happen, it may or may not come to pass. That's the God that, that most people believe in. And so God's decretive will, which is that second type of God's will, is harder to understand because it's not like ours. And that's, that's the jump that people make. We, we're not familiar with that in ourselves, so it's hard for us to comprehend um, and God's decretive will is his eternal, unchangeable purpose concerning all things which he has made to be brought by means to their appointed ends. This some call the absolute efficacious will of God, the will of his good pleasure, always fulfilled. And indeed, this is the only proper, eternal, 
consistent, immutable will of God. So if you want to speak of God's will properly as God is in and of himself, the decretive will of God is, is that proper way to think of God as he is. And as God relates to our world and, 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 and an eternal being stepping into a, a temporal world, you get these dynamics between the... Uh, actually, we won't get into that, but that, that's where these, these problems start coming from. Yeah. Yeah, so when we looked at the biblical basis for the doctrine, we looked at passages that emphasize the decretive will of God, like Isaiah 46.10 that we looked at. says, My counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my pleasure. So I trust you've got a sense that the Bible has kind of two groups of verses. Does that make sense? God's will that doesn't come to pass and God's will that is always done, always comes to pass. So those are the two things. So what I want to do is we're just, uh, I think we're getting towards the end here, but I want to just draw up a little diagram on the whiteboard for you. Um, and, and this is where you start to see how this, these concepts start to play out in Christianity in a lot of different ways. So if you, maybe I'll draw it down this end. We'll start down here. So at this end, we're going to have, um, we'll have Plato's cave, just that analogy we had. And we had the world above. And we had the world below. And we're going to draw a category. So that's going to set out the grid. So if you think in those two categories, it's going to help you see the, the rest of what's going on. And you have, uh, so these are the different sort of things. It's Plato's cave. We're going to have the will of God. So we're talking about the God's will. And we've got those two types of gods. We've got the decretive and the preceptive. So it's the decretive and preceptive will of God. So one of them is like ours, the shadowy kind of knowledge like in Plato's cave. And one of them is just like a whole other way of thinking that we can't relate to where God does everything he wants. Does that make sense? I want you to look at some other doctrines. Who, who believes the Bible is the word of God? <laughs> yeah? Important doctrine, eh? Who wrote the book of Romans? I've got three answers. <laughs> we got, um, so anyway, so we'll put the word of God up here, and you'll see. And we have, I'm going to give two answers, and, you, and the third, third one's a slip in there. We have, uh, it's inspired by God. And it was, uh, it was written by man, wasn't it? I want you to notice something about that doctrine. We can say Paul wrote the book of Romans and everyone says, yeah, sure he did. He's a human author. That's the world in which we live and move and have our being. Does that make sense? A human guy woke up one morning, he had a desire and a will and he wanted to write to the Romans a letter. But then at the same time, it was inspired by God and everything Paul did... He did because God caused him to do it. Does that make sense? And that knowledge is on the level of like the world above. It's, it's, it's a higher reality. We can't understand how God inspired a man to do exactly what he wants. Yet every word Paul put down, every single thing was exactly what God caused to take place. And I want you to know, I've never had a single person come to me and say, Andrew, I hate the doctrine of the word of God. I hate it, you know. It just, God is just a puppet master and he just made Paul do whatever he wanted to do. Do you understand that? Of course we don't. We hold the tension, don't we? We understand that, that God inspired it 
and he caused a human author to do exactly what he wanted. No one, no one argues about that. It's just, we just understand there's this beautiful tension where there's things about God that are too high for us to understand. And, and Paul woke up with his own will. He wasn't forced to do it. He just wrote. And so that's, that's the doctrine of the Word of God. And you see that tension running through there. You can see the person of Christ. And you understand that he is truly God. And he's truly man. And can you see the same thing going on? There's a human being standing in front of the people and he's like, this is the carpenter's son, you know, human being. And then he stands up there in the Mount of Transfiguration and this glory just beams out of his body and he's truly God and truly man at the same time. The people can see and perceive a human being but it takes great faith to believe and see that he truly is the son of God. And so that same doctrine, you see that same dynamic, can't you? There's something more than our reality happening in the, in the person of Christ. Tell me, is the word of God, is that an important doctrine? It is, eh? The person of Christ, is it an important doctrine? What about a doctrine of salvation? Is that an important doctrine? I want you to see something in this doctrine. This is where a lot of arguments come from. I'm going to put up here in doctrine of salvation. Down the bottom, we're going to have that man believes... And he repents, doesn't he? So when the gospel comes, a man, he, he hears the gospel with his ears and he believes and he repents and he comes to Christ. And that's in the world in which we live and move and have our being. And we understand it, we can comprehend it. And then sometimes you get these funny people that come along and they go, God chose you before the foundation of the world. And you go, wow, oh, that's ridiculous. Does that make sense? You've got the same dynamic going on. And so up on this level, which is in a way that is above the normal reality of our world, God is acting in a, in a different kind of way. So we, we, we believe in things like sovereign election. Election, where God chooses us. And regeneration. And we say that's a monogistic regeneration, like God alone causes it. And there are so many arguments about the doctrine of salvation and what's going on here is that same dynamic, the same dynamic you have in the Word of God, where man is acting, but there's a higher level that people aren't comprehending, where God is acting beforehand to cause to happen exactly what he planned to take place. There's another doctrine. I've run out of space, so I'm going to stick it over here. And has anyone ever um, had any arguments or we'll call them robust discussions about the atonement? Yeah, Scott, you heard one or two about that? So we've got the atonement. The atonement up here. And we have what's called a universal offer. They were talking about that in the question time just now. So the universal offer is, is what do they call it? Promiscuous preaching. You know, it's just it's just general. It's just he's just you're preaching to anybody and every anybody to just believe in Christ to come to him and there's it's as if it's as if God doesn't know who's going to be saved he wants all to be saved there's this general offer this general call of the gospel and that's what we understand in our world that's the world in which we live and move and have our being the universal offer but then some funny people come along and they start talking about a definite atonement And we find it hard to get our head around because there's a particular number 
of the elect that God chose and wrote their names in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. And we can't get our head around it. We just can't understand it. It's, it's a way in which God works, which is just above and beyond us. Does that make sense? And so what, I, what I'd love to do today is for you to all see that in all these key doctrines, it's, it's not, it, there's just a way in which God works where his ways are higher than our ways. And these aren't, these, all of these things, and we could just keep extending the list, this tension runs through so many different doctrines in the Bible, and it causes so many arguments, so many splits, and so many divisions. But I tell you what, there are people, I know people are capable of getting there because they believe that the Word of God, and they, they hold that it's inspired and written by man. So I know there's hope. People can get there. But it's, it's as if there's people that live only on the bottom row. Does that make sense? They believe all those things on the bottom row. And you start talking about sovereign election, and they, they can't see it. They don't see it. They, they can't see what you're talking about. Or you start talking about the extent of the atonement. They can see the universal offer, the passages like that in the Scripture, but they can't see a fixed number, an actual people that God died for. And, that's, that's, and I think when you can just see the categories and see that, that dual dynamic going through. It gives you the ability to actually engage in the conversation and see what's going on and, and wrap your head around it, not be offended. And, and, and I think, it's, Lord willing, it's a helpful thing. But I want to identify, just as we wrap up, that there's just a key point, that there are, <clears throat> there are those that comprehend only second causes. So if, if, I, if I took you back to the definition, it talks about first and second causes. And, and the second causes are, if you took, say, the, the Word of God example, what the, the first cause is that it's inspired by God. So the first or primary or ultimate cause is what we call it, is that God caused the Word of God to be what it is. And the secondary cause is the cause that happens in time and space in our world, which is it was written by man. Paul came along and he, and he, he did this action. And so there's a category of first and second causes is what you can start to see through those doctrines. And so there are those that comprehend only second causes, which is the bottom row generally in that diagram, arising out of the things evident to them in their reasoning in this world. And there are those that, relying on the word of God, <clears throat> lift their mind above the things of this world and comprehend that there, are, that there is sorry, a primary cause that operates at a divine transcendent level far above our creaturely limitations, which is those top-row doctrines. Uh, so Herman Bavinck, again, has obviously been very helpful. He masterfully pinpoints the crux of the matter when he says, whether one thinks along Pelagian or Augustinian lines, that's generally the two, two views that are engaging, the sole difference is this. Reformed Christians, and listen to this, with Scripture in their hands, they did not stop at the consideration of secondary causes but they ventured to push on to the primary cause, and that is the will of God. So instead of staying on the bottom row, they looked in the Word of God, and it showed them more. It showed them more. So just to wrap up here, so we've considered the doctrine of the decree of God. We've seen that it's God's plan, that God has foreordained all things whatsoever that come to pass. <clears throat> we've seen that this is uh, clearly taught in the Word of God, it's undeniably biblical and must be affirmed. And your only choice this afternoon, I'm being pretty rough on you here, you don't have a choice, your only choice this afternoon is to, is to believe God's word or to reject it. It really is that simple. 
Um, this doctrine, if it were to be embraced on a wide scale, it would remove a massive rotting dead animal from our theological water supply. <clears throat> it would enable our churches to overflow with clean, healthy theology. Rather than disease, sickness, weakness, quarreling, disputes and division among God's people, it would allow our Lord's people to grow strong in the wisdom and knowledge of their God. Yes, yeah, so if believed, it would banish a thousand heresies, it would end a thousand arguments, and it would be a pillar of truth in our churches, and it would form a mighty foundation of Christian unity, and it would bring much glory to God. Yeah, so I think, and, and listen carefully, there's so many truths that, that flow downstream from this one, and you've, I've just given you a taste of it today. There's so many truths that flow downstream. And if you get this doctrine wrong, everything else becomes polluted. You only see one or the other, and, and, it, and it's terrible. And if I could teach you anything, that would be enough for you to just see how critical this doctrine is, the doctrine of the decree, and how connected it is to so many other precious truths. And so to conclude, I, I call everyone here today two things. Firstly, to ascribe the first and chiefest part in the disposing of the things of this world to God's will and not to man's. And finally, I call everyone here today not to be content with a knowledge of secondary causes, but to venture to push on, to study, to meditate, to believe, and to affirm, to embrace, to proclaim, and to boldly teach the primary cause of all things, the eternal decree. Questions? Sure. No, I think that's a bit strong, but, but, but what we are saying, we're not saying God does anything, but, but there is a point at which we're very uncomfortable, aren't we, when we start letting God be in control, like really uncomfortable. But I want to tell you that the Word of God goes further than we typically do. Um, and so a lot of those things I read about, like those, they were, there are biblical examples where God is sovereignly in control. And, and if you look in, is it um, Genesis 50 verse 20, is that classic example? And we're talking about Joseph and his brothers do a wicked, sinful thing. And the Bible says that the brothers meant it for evil and God meant that thing to happen, but he meant it for good. And so God is still sovereignly in control of all the evil things that happen, but he's not culpable. He's not responsible. And so, and so there is. And, and so there's a distinction that gets made between the ultimate cause. And, and like, you know, we talked about the example of Job, didn't we? And you see a layer of causality. You see that God ultimately relented from all the evil that he brought upon Job. So you can, you can see the scripture goes there. He ultimately, it's just clear. But... It's just a very delicate, um, the beautiful fabric of complexity that the divine decree is where, uh, and now if you look closely at the definition, it establishes both primary and secondary causation. And so the secondary causation, like human beings that mean something for evil, become culpable for the evil. Does that make sense? And God can still mean that thing to happen, but bring about a good end and work all things to good. Yeah, yeah, we could put that, um, that, yeah, a specific example of Joseph's brothers beating him up, selling him into slavery, that the brothers meant it to happen, 
And, and so in our world, they, they did an evil act, but as part of God's decree and his plan, God meant that same event to happen, and he meant it for good. And so God remains kind of clean and untouched from sin, but still sovereignly in control. And I can't explain that to you much more than that, but, but that's, that's where we let the word of God go a bit further than we, we generally are comfortable with. Yeah. Sorry, Simon. Yeah, well, you know, Joseph got into Egypt and he looked back and he says, God, you have brought me here. And it's like, huh. Do you know what I mean? Like, he can even see God's hand, God's providential hand. And to be honest, I think you all believe, like, you will and choose to do things. And sometimes you get a sense that God doesn't want you to do that, you know? It's not working out according to your plan. So, God, we just, we do. The Bible ascribes much more sovereignty to God than we generally allow. Sorry, in the back there. No, no, please, no trouble at all. You, you arrived precisely when God ordained you to... <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, sure. Yeah. So now, so you, what you're saying is that. Yeah, just uh, I, I, I stick with First John one verse four. Mm. Uh, God is light. Yeah. We cannot attribute, in my view, we cannot attribute sin or evil. No, do you know what? Yeah, no, we mustn't. And I think, but what I'm saying is. There's a way in which God is still in control of all these events that are happening, but he's not the one that's culpable for the sin. And so I think, look, the doctrine that you want to look into a little more to see it, perhaps, if I can, I can say this, is there's a doctrine called concurrence. And, and you hear in that sort of concurrence or like two streams merging or two things going together at the same time. And so in all actions, there's, there's the invisible hand of God and there's mankind's actions, but... Um, <laughs> so is that as preceptive or, or decretive will of God, would you say? So if it didn't happen as God wanted, we would put that in the category of God's preceptive will, and, and we called that his precepts and his commands. And so you can hear in that verse that that's, that's going against God's commands. And so that's... Yeah, I mean, look, do you know what we can? I'd be happy to talk with you more, and we can look at some different things after after the session. But um, you know, I unequivocally hold to the fact that God is in control of all things, and so when you look at Ephesians one eleven, that God works all things in heaven and earth according to His predetermined plan. He does. We affirm what you're worried about. We affirm that God remains completely innocent of sin, and He never does evil. And you know, God is light, and in Him is no darkness. But we just, yeah, we, we just go probably a little further than it looks like you're comfortable with as well. You know, you quoted Isaiah 
Yeah, that's right. And it's more commonly translated as, as evil, yeah. Yeah. But it's, it, it, it doesn't say God is evil. He does evil. And I want to tell you a couple of things as well. God's decree, it makes it sound like it's fatalism, right? Like God just causes everything to happen. But you must distinguish God's decree from the execution of the decree, which is, I think, where you're starting to join things together. And so God doesn't... God's decree establishes certainty of future events, but it do, he doesn't do, and he can. In some cases, he can act in our world, but there's a, dis, a really important distinction between the execution of the decree, which is generally by secondary causes, like a wicked person who does, does something which is opposite to God's preceptive will or commands. Um, but, but that, so God's plan, but it is, it's like an invisible plan where you're walking around you're freely kind of choosing according to your own desires, but you find out that you're doing exactly what God is, is God's plan is determined to take place. Just like the wicked people that crucified Christ, they did those things according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And, and yeah, and they were, yeah, and that's the thing. So the the people that carried it out, the secondary causes, uh, have culpability. God is not culpable in that sense for the, for the wickedness that was in their hearts to carry out those things. But it is, it's like, and this is the thing, it is, it's impossible for us to comprehend. And I'm not, I'm, I don't imagine I'm going to give you a sufficient answer because we are relying on the fact that this is what the Word of God reveals to us and we trust that and, and it says and teaches these things. Andrew, mm. one of the Yeah. That's exactly it. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the thing. I'm trying to, yeah, I'm trying to give you a category to think of God that is not just like us because the, the, our text we looked at at the beginning is God is not like us. He's so different, high, lifted up. He's, he's, just, he's, he's just a different category of being. And what happens is when you get a... This is where I wasn't going to go before. But you have a... <laughs> You have a transcendent being who dwells outside of time, who's limitless, suddenly acting in a world that is full of limitations and time and finiteness and creatureliness and every issue that happens. This is the, the, the core problem in theology is that you've got this God that if he was to act in our world, how does he act in our world without becoming limited by it and restrained by it? How does a God that's immutable and doesn't ever change but he, in his scripture, it's as if he changes. One minute he's angry at us, the next minute he's forgiving us. And so the being of God doesn't change, but what we know of, of his character is, is revealed differently to us at different times as we move through time and space. But all these problems come about, but ultimately it's having a category in your head for something that's higher and above us. Maybe one more question. Yeah. Yeah, you know, if you want to come and see me afterwards, we can. Um, I can give you a copy of the notes, and you're welcome. Yeah, yeah. Should we pray, eh? I oh, sorry. Ah, oh, yeah. <laughs> Pandora's box. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm pleased. You know, yeah. No, it's a pleasure. Thank you. No, it's been it's a neat privilege to um, to talk to you all. So.
Yes, we pray, eh? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time and we, we thank you for these things we've looked at in your word. Lord, these things are above us. They are high above us and we, we cannot attain them. Such knowledge is too wonderful to us. You hem us in both before and behind and Lord, we, we just can't comprehend these things. But Lord, we, we trust as we look at your word and we, we're thankful that even in bad and sinful situations in our own lives, Lord, when things happen that, that, are, that are wicked and evil, Lord, we, we rest in you and in your sovereignty. And, and we're thankful that you don't step back, that you are actively in control and we can trust you as our merciful Father um, to be in control. And we thank you that you are sovereign in even these negative events of life. And we praise you for it. And uh, Lord, we look forward to seeing you one day face to face as you are and being able to worship you more appropriately. And we, we pray you'd be with us all. And, and thank you for everything you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.